Funding for this edition of Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been provided by PSENG, committed to providing safe, reliable energy now and in the future. The New Jersey Education Association, New Jersey Sharing Network, Prudential Financial, RWJ Barnabas Health, the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, the New Jersey Economic Development Authority, Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, here when you need us most, now and always. And by Rutgers University, Newark. Promotional support provided by ROINJ, informing and connecting businesses in New Jersey. And by CIANJ and Commerce Magazine. Welcome to Think Tank. I'm Steve Adubato with my co-anchor and executive producer of Think Tank, uh, Nicole Swinnerton. Nicole, tell folks what they're about to see with uh, Don Lemon from CNN, who's a friend and a colleague and an even better person who wrote this book, This is the Fire. What, am I, what do I say, excuse me, what I say to my friends about racism? Uh, Don Lemon, go ahead. What was your takeaway? What a great interview with Don. He is a stellar journalist and uh, now an amazing author. And he talks all about uh, what we can do uh, to confront racism in our society with our friends, with our families. It comes down to personal relationships and how you can be a, a better human overall. I think that um, he really is hopeful about the future too, which I think was my biggest takeaway from this interview that he is hopeful. And, you know, one of the other things he talks about is um, the role of the media. And he is a journalist who comes every night with the facts and making sure to bring us all of the facts that we need to make our informed decisions. And I think having that perspective of one of, if not the only black man who is a, a primetime anchor, prime anchor, I mean, it's it's an amazing perspective that he has and something to really respect. Yeah, it's amazing, but it's also an embarrassment on behalf of the media that Don is the only primetime anchor who happens to be black. Um, you know, the other thing about Don, who I've known for about, I don't know, almost a decade, um, I remember when Don was trying to figure out where he was going to be in this business, and for him to establish the place that he has and be on the perch that the perch he has and to write a book like this at a time like this, um, and we talked a lot about the George Floyd um, horrific situation, that murder on camera, and then the, the verdict and the day of the verdict and his reaction. Um, powerful stuff. Check that out. And also on the back end, a terrific conversation with Henel Patel about uh, voter suppression efforts. Right. Real quick. Give me 20 seconds on that. That's right. She talks all about the um, efforts that we've been seeing in Georgia and other states that have been suppressing the vote and making it harder for people to vote. And, um, you know, Steve does a great job of, of having Hennel really explain how is this suppression or how is it voter security? So it's, it's helping us all understand what's really going on. And finally, those who make Think Tank here on News 12 Plus possible are... We would love to thank New Jersey Education Association, New Jersey Sharing Network, RWJ Barnabas Health, and the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey. 
Well said. Our executive producer, Nicole, Steve Adubato, Think Tank, check it out. Steve Adubato here, but way more importantly, um, on behalf of the public television family, we are honored to have my good friend Don Lemon. He's a friend to a lot of people. He's an anchor at CNN. You catch him every single night. Uh, tonight with Don Lemon, um, 10 p.m. to 12 a.m., the author of this book. A lot of people are reading it. This is The Fire, What I Say to My Friends About Racism. And by the way, influenced by this book, this is, right? The next fire, excuse me, the fire next time, James Baldwin. Hey, Don, how you doing? I'm doing okay, Steve. It's so good to see you. Thanks for having me on. It's a, As you know, it's a crazy time, um, and we're all just doing the best we can in this moment. That's right. And so we're taping on the 22nd of April. We'll be seen later on the 20th. And by the way, as reading again the letter to your nephew, say your nephew's first name. Rashad. You were telling him, you wrote, I believe, on the 25th of May, and you were telling him about George Floyd calling out for his mama as he was killed. And you said, quote, we know what comes next. You said that to your nephew. Do we know what comes next? <sighs> Um, yeah, well, I said, we know what comes next, meaning the weeping and then um, the complacency and, and... And the hope and prayers. And the hope and prayers. And so thoughts and prayers come next, and then we weep, and then we become complacent. And then until I said another Black man is shot on another street, uh, and then the weeping begins again. I think that that comes again, but I am hopeful, Steve, that some real reform comes after this because, you know, I wrote the book obviously before the verdict. I wrote the book because of, in large part, because of the unrest, because of the killing of George Floyd. And so um, I think that I'm hopeful that, that this is the beginning to accountability. I'm hoping that maybe we don't know what comes again. You know, the other thing that, that struck me in reading the book is that so many people use the phrase, quote, but Don, or not just to Don, but to others, but I'm not a racist, including the, the woman I believe it's uh, Amy Cooper in Central Park. Um, walk the dog walker. Christian Cooper is there. Yeah. And she can call the cops. I have a black guy here, but I'm not a racist. Now, yeah. she's just one of many who say that. Now, I want to say I'm not a racist, but you argue that it's way more complex than saying I'm not a racist yeah. for yeah. white I, folks. Yeah, I say pocket that I'm not a racist um, card because... What you're saying to me is that you don't want to deal with it. What you're saying is don't harsh my, my high or my mellow. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to deal with these things. So I, I try to get people to understand, understand it this way. You and I are both you know, dumb men. Women have to deal with all kinds of issues when it comes to misogyny, sexism, discrimination that we don't understand because we get to walk around as men in a privileged society that's geared towards men. And so for a man to say, oh, well, I'm not sexist, the woman would go, well, there are some things you probably need to deal with. And so rather than saying, well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, why don't you say, well, what is, okay, so then why do you, what did I say or do or how am I operating in a system that is sexist, that is helping to um, perpetuate the sexism? Doesn't mean that my, my full body or my full being is sexist. So in that same vein, it's the same thing with racism. I also go on to say it doesn't matter if you are not racist. Our society is racist. And so if you can think about it that way, instead of this, 
you know, this uh, instead of being aggrieved by the possibility that someone thinks that you have a bias, whether it's unconscious or not, instead instead of being aggrieved by that, why don't you accept or listen to the person and try to figure out what part that they're trying to help you become aware of and make to make the whole situation better. That's it. And so, so many people become so aggrieved by the possibility that they could be racist or could be biased that they make it about them rather than about the actual act of racism itself. And what is more egregious? The act of racism is more egregious than your perceived aggrievement uh, or racism. That's it. It's, just, it's as simple as that. Hey, Doc, can you do the title? Baldwin's book, I believe 62 or 63, it came out. The fire next time. Yeah. This is the fire, right? Yeah. First of all, why? I mean, you really talk a lot about Baldwin, and he had a great influence on you. Explain the connection. And the fire is racism. Yeah. So this is this is my copy of the fire next time. One of my originals <laughs> from the nineties with all of the notes and everything. Yeah. I thought it was the original. My mom says no. There's one here somewhere that's all beaten up or whatever. Um, but um, why? Because uh, he says in the book, he says, um, you know, from uh, I think he says written from a Bible verse or whatever, I forget his exact thing. But the quote is, God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, the fire next time. And so this was written to his, he wrote this letter. His nephew. His nephew on the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation, the Emancipation Proclamation. Proclamation, right. He said, you know, we are celebrating um, 100 years of freedom, 100 years too soon. And so um, when he said the fire next time, meaning what is going to be worse? What, how are we actually going to get people to deal with this issue of racism in this country? And so um, when I saw what happened with George Floyd, I said, well, this is the fire that James Baldwin was talking about. And so if we don't deal with this fire now, if we don't contain it and put it in a fireplace, or at least where we can control the embers and the sparks, then we are doomed to, you know, uh, to... Uh, to, I, I don't know. We are doomed to an existence or to a future or to a, a present um, that is going to be untenable. And so I, that's why I say this is a fire. So when James Baldwin was impassioned enough to write to his nephew, I was that impassioned because this book, James Baldwin's book, was the most influential thing, um, th was the thing that influenced me the most on racism and, and dealing with sexuality, a black man who happened to be gay dealing with racism and homophobia. Same thing for me. So when this whole quarantine thing was going down, George Floyd was going down, I could not see my loved ones. I was feeling guilty about the world that I was leaving for my great nephew, that he was about to inherit. And wow. I sat down and wrote a letter to him, much as James Baldwin did. And after I began to write that letter saying, I hope you are able to embrace your beauty and blackness in the world in a way that I and a degree of comfort that I was not able to, the whole book just kind of poured out. It was, I mean, it just came out fast. I was, I was just um, inspired. I was in, 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 in the middle of inspiration writing this book. By the way, checking us out now, right now, that's Don Lemon. This is the book. This is The Fire. You can catch Don every night from 10 p.m. to 12 a.m. Uh, Don, we have you for a limited amount of time, so I want to be as judicious as possible. Okay, go ahead. In the book, you say that 2016, that Donald Trump was the president we needed? I said he was the president we deserved and, and, and quite possibly the, the president we needed. 
because resident we deserve because we were living in this fantasy land about the, this post-racial society that the that pos that that we um, that many people thought existed because we had all of a sudden elected a black president and uh, people of color were like no we don't live in a post-racial society black folks were like no the racism is still out there and so and, and it was just beneath the surface so Donald Trump came along and he exposed all of that he exposed all the racists and not just the people in the, the hoods and sheets but the people who are marching with uh, khakis and polo shirts and tiki torches, the people who are wearing suits and Chanel dresses to the office. He exposed all of those people. So now we knew who the racists were. And I would rather be able to, being someone from the South who knows about overt racism, I'd rather be able to deal with someone at face value, knowing who they are, rather than hiding who they are. And so that's why I said he was the president. We deserved because we were living in a false reality and probably needed in order to expose the racists and the bigots and the anti-Semites and um, the um, Islamophobes and whatever in the society. You know, Don, um, the first time you and I met on your show several years ago, I don't like saying this, but it's before you were Don Lemon, meaning you were always Don Lemon, but now you're Don Lemon. Okay. And, and, and what I mean by that is, the word celebrity is so absurd, but your, your, your profile, you're the only African-American in late night in the role that you are in. Your position is huge. My question is what responsibility do you feel every night when you go on the air? I feel a responsibility to tell the truth. I feel a responsibility to, um, to try to bring us back, uh, to bring us out of a post-truth post-fact world. I feel a responsibility to speak for marginalized people like me, to speak for Black people in this country, because who else is going to do it? You're right. I'm the only person who looks like me in prime time and have been for a while. So I do understand the responsibility that I have. I may not have gotten the gravity of it in the beginning, because, you know, you don't, sometimes you don't get things until you, you start to receive all the criticism, and then you realize, like, <laughs> my, my goodness, there are people out there who are really... Um, Obsessed with you. Obsessed with every single word. Every word. That I say. And, and, and so now I do know how important my voice is, and I choose my words carefully, and I'm a better communicator than when you saw me and when I started. So, yeah, I feel the responsibility. Final comment. Uh, you know, on my wall in our home studio, I got a picture of your colleague, our friend, Chris Cuomo, every night. The handoff between the two of you is pretty is that for, interesting. Uh, is that for pests, roaches, and bugs? To yeah. I will not say anything about my um, Italian-American brother uh, in broadcasting, but I will say this. The chemistry between the two of you is real. The friendship is real. The commitment is real. Between the two of you, what do you want to say about you and Chris together every night? Um, Chris and I are, we're, we're the show and the voice voices that people need. Who that People need these voices because... None of it is scripted. It is probably the least scripted part of the day on cable news anywhere. And we take chances with each other that other people won't. We say on television what other people won't, what people are afraid of. People are afraid of being canceled. People are afraid of going too far and that they're going to get so much criticism. In that moment, we are relying on our friendship and our understanding and what we understand of the world to guide us through. And also on um, the grace that we allow each other. And I have his back and he has mine. 
And so I think that, I think that is probably, you know, not in my ego, whatever. I think that's probably the most important moment on cable television of those, you know, sometimes three, sometimes 10 minutes that we spend together every night. Completely. No disagreement. Other than watching PBS, that's a good, good oh, thing to catch every night. Just uh, come on, Don. Other than you. You're, no, you're, I didn't say me. I said <laughs> you, my but, ego's but, big, but not that big. PBS. Yeah, PBS. But do you, listen, <laughs> it breaks through. Even you mentioned it, Steve. You are a legend, a, a, a living icon. That just and means I'm old. To that moment. <laughs> no, 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 you're not. You don't even age. I'm so mad at you. Hey, hey, listen, I way past the time your people said we had you, but I got to ask you, please tell me there's a, please tell me you're hopeful. I am, but the book is hopeful. It's optimistic. It's not accusatory. It's unifying. It's not divisive. We need unity. We need people to be hopeful. And um, we also need to recognize who our allies are. And I think that we have many more allies, those of us who want a fair and equitable treatment for all people in this country, not to go back to a time when we didn't have that. I think there are more of us, and I think there is power in numbers and in unity, not in division. So yes, I am very hopeful. That is Don Lemon. This is the book. This is The Fire, What I Say to My Friends About Racism. Can say it again? Can I tell you a story real quick? You could tell me anything. Okay, so you said that what I, I say, this is what I say to my friends about racism. So I double that. This past weekend was the first time that I was able to go to a dinner party with, you know, more than three people. So I went to a dinner party. There was eight of us there. Everybody double back. So we did the whole thing. We were seated. Still, we still sat a seat apart, right? And so I gave everyone a copy of this book because I said, it's what I say to my friends about racism. And we started having a conversation, conversations like we had never had at a dinner party before about race and about racism because the book allowed how does he able to have a conversation? It gave us the mechanism to be able to have that conversation. And I think everyone should do that, whether it's this book or Ibram Kendi's book or um, Isabel Wilkerson's book or whatever it is. Buy the book, start having the conversation, and, um, and it'll answer all of the questions that you need to know. It'll give you the knowledge and the vocabulary to be able to do these things and with a degree of comfort with your friends. You must find friends who don't look like you and don't share your points of view. But I'm telling you, I, it was the most mind-blowing experience that I had this weekend sharing this book with people. And I said, if other folks can do this, I've done my job with this book. You have done your job and you'll keep doing your job. And I just want to say thank you, Don. I wish you and those closest to you, your friends, your family, um, all the best. And, and I'm, I'm happy for you. But uh, again, more work to be done. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Steve, and I hope to see you on, you know, on my side of the street sometime soon. So you got all, that's stop Don, turning us down. What's that? Stop turning this down when we call you. Yeah. <laughs> Check out Don every night as he and Chris Cuomo do their thing that makes a difference. You know, Don, Don Lemon and I have a lot in common. You know, the biggest is we're very uncomfortable with self-promotion. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Be well. I'm Steve. That's Don. Stay with us. We'll be right back. To see more Think Tank with Steve Adubato programs and to listen to Think Tank with Steve Adubato, the podcast, visit us online at steveadubato.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD, and follow us on Twitter at steveadubato.
Hi, I'm Joe Roth. In New Jersey, there are nearly 4,000 residents in need of a life-saving organ transplant, and one person dies every three days waiting for this gift of life. One organ and tissue donor can save eight lives and enhance the lives of over 75 people. You have the power to make a difference and give hope. For information or to become an organ and tissue donor, visit www.njsharingnetwork.org. And be sure to talk with your family and friends about this life-saving decision. We're now joined by Hanel Patel, who is Director of Democracy and Justice Program at the New Jersey Institute of Social Justice. Hanel, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. You know, there's a lot of things going on around the country as it relates to um, changing voting laws. We're taping at the end of April. This will be seen after that. In your mind, what is the biggest difference between voter suppression initiatives and what some call voter security or election security? Biggest difference? You know, the, the, that's a great question. And it comes down to this. This is what everyone should ask. When making decisions about what voting laws to pass, ask yourself, who is afraid of democracy and who's embracing it? And when you're thinking about democracy, it's about the voters. That's it. It is about the voters. Are we making things better for voters? And that's what comes down to whether we are actually making our democracy stronger or not. A lot of people will say under the guise that we're doing this to make the voter system stronger or not, but it comes down to, are they actually doing it? Oh, what's the precipice for their decisions? What are they actually doing? What is the impact of it? And if the impact is hurting democracy, if it's making it harder for people to vote, it's voter suppression. From your perspective, um, how much of what's going on in Georgia, what's going on in other states where state legislatures and or governors are attempting to significantly change the process of how one votes, um, and in some cases, some say make more difficult as the case you're making right now, how much do you believe it's based on the results of the 2016 presidential election, not to mention the Senate races in Georgia? So much of it. Almost all of it's about that. <laughs> you can tell it's about that. And there, the funny thing about it is, in a lot of these states, they're saying, they're telling you that all of this was, the election worked well, and it did, that there is no, that the election was safe, secure, and had the highest voter turnout in the country in many, many states. And that they're using a lot of the conspiracies we heard, a lot of those lies that were told right from the top, as from the then president, about the system. They're using that as pretext to turn back voting rights. And we're doing, we're seeing that it has, a lot of that is the result of the actual election, what happened in those elections. And you see that based on how they're target, targeting what laws to push back, what laws to pull back, where they're making Such it as. for people to use drop boxes, for example. That's why, is, why is the drop box, I'm sorry for interrupting, why is this drop box thing so important, please? It comes down to voter access, right? In New Jersey, for example, we are right now working to expand Dropbox access. We just passed the law to make it more equitable so that you have Dropboxes, uh, Dropbox access in more parts of different cities um, than, you were than we were able to earlier. And the reason being Dropboxes were highly successful. Voters loved them. You were able to vote 24 seven 
using a Dropbox, you working around your schedule. People work at different hours during the day. People have kids, um, dependents. It's much easier to be able to use your time to be able to cast a ballot. Rolling that back, as some states are doing, making it only available for certain hours, making only some Dropboxes available for certain times for no justification. Dropboxes are secure 24-7. There's a security camera. There's no reason to make the limit them other than you don't want it to be easy for people to vote. And we're in New Jersey making it easier for people, making it easier for voters to cast their ballot. And let me try this real quick on this. What is the rationale or the reason for why in certain states like Georgia, I believe there's an aspect of their voter, the changes that the legislation proposes is to not is to bar giving water or providing water to people who are waiting online to vote. Help me understand what I don't understand right now. No, I would put <laughs> it, at least in terms of making it make sense, right? It just comes down to this. Unless, if you're trying to do this to make our democracy better, there is no uh, there is no rationale. If you're trying to make it harder for people to vote, then it does. Here's why: if you're standing on long lines, and we've all seen it. We've seen it for years, not just 2020, 2016, 2012. In places like Georgia, you see long lines for people waiting to pass their ballot. People are waiting hours and hours. When you're doing that, then you're saying someone can't give you water, someone can't give you food. So in order to take care of your own needs, you have to make a choice. Do I keep standing on this line to cast my ballot or do I go get some water? And so when you're making that choice... I'm, I'm sorry again for interrupting. You believe that it's to get people to opt to get out of that line and not vote. It makes it. It certainly gives them that option. It certainly makes it much more of a clear yeah. choice, doesn't it? It doesn't give so, you the thing going here. Have some water and vote. So President uh, Biden calls the this initiative in Georgia the election law, the effort from of Governor Kemp and others. And we don't know what's going to happen. Again, we're taping at the end of. April, he calls it the Jim Crow of the 21st century. How much do you believe, to what degree do you believe, Hanel, these initiatives, and they're not all the same, but to change voter laws are based in race, they around are. race, they and are, are ultimately, quote unquote, racist. They are. This is, a, this is a redux of Jim Crow. We look at history. You know, Jim Crow laws, we hear about them, we study them, we learn about them. And everyone thinks, I think there's this idea in the country, in New Jersey, in a lot of places that they just had laws that said, oh, hey, Black people can't vote. They weren't written like that. They just made it so it was much, much harder for people in certain areas, particularly Black voters, Brown voters, to vote. And that's what this is. They are targeting they don't like how the election turned out, so they're targeting certain areas. They're making it harder for certain places to vote, for certain groups to vote. They're putting in additional voter ID requirements that harm black and brown voters more. That is what Why? we're seeing. Why is that race-based? So it's it, there. you have to see the impact of it. You have to see how things are doing. Voter ID laws are a great example of it. They, uh, there's people who are like, oh, you know, it's just a voter ID law. What yeah. does it actually What would you say mean? to those people? <laughs> what you say to those people is, what does it mean when you're saying a voter ID law, right? You, you might be able to go to the DMV and get a license. Not everyone drives. Not everyone has a driver's license. Not everyone can afford the insurance Not and go to the car. Not everyone can afford the insurance to get a driver's license. 
when we talk about who has those IDs, and then you talk about what are those requirements to get those IDs, to, you're talking about the forms of identification needed to even get a driver's license, your birth certificate, things like that that make it much harder for people who are economically less secure. And in a lot of places, including for New Jersey, if this was the case, some of the poor, poorest people, people because of the economic disparity we see are often black and brown voters, but it's also young voters. We see voter ID laws harm students more than anybody else often. Because, got 30 seconds left, because? Because students don't necessarily have um, IDs for where they live, they don't have driver's licenses, it makes things harder for them to vote. So when we're looking at what laws we're passing for voters, we have to look at their impact. Is this helping voters? If it's not, why is it not? If it's harming people, who is it harming? Often it's black and brown, black and brown voters. This will not be the last conversation we have about election security, voter suppression, um, and a whole range of issues having to do with as democracy is at a crossroads. It's not just a slogan that we have, and this has a lot to do with it, how people vote, whether they can vote, how hard it is to vote, and whether you can uh, provide water to people waiting in line. It's not my job to give commentary. We'll just put it out there. Hennel, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You got it. I'm Steve Adubato. Thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next time. Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by PSENG, the New Jersey Education Association, New Jersey Sharing Network, Prudential Financial, RWJ Barnabas Health, the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, the New Jersey Economic Development Authority. Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, and by Rutgers University, Newark. Promotional support provided by ROINJ, and by CIANJ and Commerce Magazine. Hi, I'm Joe Roth. In New Jersey, there are nearly 4,000 residents in need of a life-saving organ transplant, and one person dies every three days waiting for this gift of life. One organ and tissue donor can save eight lives and enhance the lives of over 75 people. You have the power to make a difference and give hope. For information or to become an organ and tissue donor, visit www.njsharingnetwork.org. And be sure to talk with your family and friends about this life-saving decision.